Welcome back to The Gaze. I'm Maya Bedward. And I'm Aisha Jamal. And we're here to do the last episode of our third season. I know. It's been a drawn-out year for us, but it's been a lot of fun. A busy year for us. Yeah, that's true. And that's perhaps why the episodes have been a couple of months in between, but we were really excited on working on this last uh, episode of the season. A lot of what we decided to discuss with the support of Women in View were interesting initiatives that were coming out to help improve the gender parity situation in cinema. Earlier this season, we actually spoke to the artistic director of TIFF, Cameron Bailey, about some of the interesting initiatives the festival is doing around representation of female directors in their new Share Her Journey campaign. Yeah, and also I think from that conversation with Cameron, which is a nice way to come back to it, he was talking a lot about the kind of cinema he'd like to see in Canada and the fact that we need more diverse perspectives and we need different kinds of storytelling. And I think he was speaking about an intersection of things. And I think for us, it's wonderful to end this season with someone who really represents perhaps the type of cinema we need more of in Canada. So we actually had Jasmine, who is the director of Firecrackers, come on a few years ago to talk about her short film Wave. And now we're having her back with her producer, Caitlin, to talk about their feature debut, Firecrackers, which blew up at TIFF this year. Yeah, and it was one of over 300 films. And I think one of the interesting things about TIFF this year was that I saw so many uh, really strong female-led films. And I was looking a little bit at the percentage of... This made me really wonder, like, how many percentages of the films that I saw were actually directed by women. And it's interesting to see that it's only 36%. And that kind of surprised me a little bit because I expected that TIFF to be a gender parody. But apparently that's not the case for any of the big, big fiction film festivals in the mm-hmm. world. Because Hot Docs reached gender parody this year, no? It did, yeah. Hot Dogs is one of the sort of, I would say, uh, big festivals that has managed to do that without necessarily putting in a rule for it. But that said, Firecrackers received a lot of incredible attention at TIFF this year. And perhaps it was because of their Share Her Journey campaign, which was a big focus of the festival in terms of promoting female directors. And also because it's a damn good film. We've both seen it. Yes. We had the privilege of actually seeing a fine cut of the film a few months back and we're blown away. So we are incredibly excited to have Jasmine and Caitlin on our final episode of season three. All right. Thanks, guys, for joining us on the show. I think it was, was it two years ago, Aisha, that we had Jasmine on the show? One of our first episodes, you had a short at uh, the Breakthrough Festivals. Yeah, yeah. I had a short called Wave that played there. And then I was on your podcast, one of your first podcasts, I think. Yeah. And then since then, a lot has happened. A lot has changed. You've made your first feature film, which premiered at TIFF just recently. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey, how Mm -hmm. you went from making short films like Wave to making your first feature? Yeah. So Firecrackers is my first feature that played at TIFF in 2018 this year. It's actually based on a short film that I did at Ryerson Film School. And I did that with Caitlin, who's uh, my creative and producing partner. And it's a story. It's about two girls who want escape their small town, Lou and Chantel. And on the night that they're celebrating that, Chantel is violated by her on and off again ex-boyfriend. And that sets off a chain reaction of consequences that starts to break down their friendship and threatens their chances of freedom, basically. And that story was expanded from the short, but has a lot more sort of darker themes. And it's exploring sort of patriarchal oppression in a very specific way. And that's sort of what led me to make this film is I wanted to still explore that topic. Was it always your thought process when you were making the short that you were going to make this feature? No, because we were making a thesis film at Ryerson. And at the time, Caitlin and I, we were in this film studies class that really valued sort of male filmmakers and their stories a 
lot. And I feel like I really, at that time, when I think back, I wanted to really break out against that. I really wanted to be like, where are the women who are unapologetic on screen? Where are their stories being told? And so in that sense, there's a similar feeling, but we didn't think, let's make this short so we can make a feature down the line. After we graduated, I made two other shorts. And they were quite different than Firecrackers. I was sort of trying to find my voice as a filmmaker and find my directing style. And I'm glad that I did that. I'm glad that I took the time to uh, practice that because I don't think I would have been ready to just go from film school, thesis film, straight into a feature. That's interesting. I mean, it is so different making a short and then making a feature. I mean, Caitlin, when you guys thought about making that jump from the short to the feature, uh, what was sort of some of the things that you had to think about and that you learned from funding a feature? It kind of started with knowing actually that the telephone micro-budget program, which is now the Talent to Watch, which is what Firecrackers was funded by, we knew it existed when we were um, leaving school. It had been around for a couple years. And I think when we finish our second short out of school, we are kind of talking like, what's the next step? Are we going to keep making shorts? Are we going to make features? And at that point, I think I was trying to convince Jasmine, like, no, we should just try for this feature, see what happens. We had a couple different ideas that we were like toying with, and I think we just kept coming back to Firecrackers. So we felt when we were applying for the money, we we're like, we have to do Firecrackers because it just keeps coming back to that. So it just seemed like a really natural choice. What makes you come back to Firecrackers? I feel like what are the themes that you felt like you left unexplored in the short? Because I have seen your short and I've seen the feature. I love the short, but in a way it felt complete to me. And then when I saw the feature, I'm like, oh yes, I see how it's elaborated. But I wonder what it was for you guys that made you feel like these are the themes we're not done with. The first thing was just the response from other young women who are watching the short. I think out of all the shorts we did, that was the one that we had the most response. There was a lot of women coming up to us after the screenings being like, oh, like that was great. I feel like I saw myself. It was like wonderful to see that portrayal of women. So I think that was something that kind of stuck with us. I think also just these ideas, I mean, Jasmine and I have conversations constantly about the patriarchal oppression, misogyny, like how that works into your life, even in subtle ways. I think that was something in a short, you have 15 minutes, you don't want to really develop too many characters and have it be a mess. So with expanding it to a feature, we really got to delve into some of that, not just um, how patriarchal oppression affects women, but also men. Yeah, it was just really important to explore all those different topics. Mm. Jasmine, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I think like that topic or that theme is so huge. And even the feature couldn't cover all the facets of that. This is only one slice of what that looks like, patriarchal oppression specifically. And I don't think at the time when I was in film school, I was thinking about that as a term. I think so much has changed in my life, but also in public, you know, like I was writing the script for Firecrackers, the feature during the 2016 presidential election. And it wasn't inspired by that. But of course, I was thinking, oh, God, this still needs to be talked about. It's and even today, we're still dealing with things where like, there's so much to say about this. And of course, there's an intersectionality to that as well. And like many different voices need to tackle this subject. My voice is just one of them. But like Caitlin said, there's so many characters in Firecrackers that experience that in a different way. And I wasn't sort of keen on showing men versus women sort of as like men are the oppressors, women are not. Women can be the oppressors too. And that's shown in the film in a really subtle way, I think, through the mom character. So you need a feature to explore that. So do you think that the film is in any sense autobiographical? Like, do you find yourself in all the characters or in a specific character? I see myself in most of the characters, even the male characters. And everything in the film is based off a of truth I've known or a truth that I've seen people I'm close to, family, friends go through. I wouldn't sort of write about something or go deep into it if I couldn't really find the truth or grain of the situation. 
And so I wouldn't say it's autobiographical because I didn't go through that exact story. And I actually think that Kayla and I have talked about our next films that they might actually be more autobiographical. But this film is inspired by feelings throughout most of my life being a woman and also talking to like, you know, my mom friends, family, that sort of thing. And also the atmosphere in which I grew up in, um, not super Northern Ontario, but there was an atmosphere there and like dealing with transient sort of people and like all those life experiences fed into firecrackers. Yeah. One of my favorite additions to your feature film was the character of her brother. And I thought that character was so beautiful in the relationship that the main character had with her brother and like the way you captured that sibling relationship was quite beautiful. And a lot of the themes of patriarchy that you explored in that character. Can you tell me a little bit about the place? Like you mentioned, it is about this transient town. I know you're from Barrie, which is on the the 400, right? The 400, yeah. We shot in Hamilton, London, and St. Thomas mostly. And Barrie didn't actually work out as a location because it's a growing city. And there was feelings inspired by growing up there. But I grew up there sort of in like the early 2000s there. And it's quite a different city now. So we needed places that were more rural, more removed. You have to feel like you are actually trapped there with the characters and that they don't have an easy escape route. So we chose more sort of rural, removed areas. But again, ones that were southwestern Ontario, ones that felt like there's this idea of an industry that's died. And I always talked about the place as being a town or community that's left behind by globalization, that there was industry and there was looming life there at one point, but that's all gone. But there's people who still live there. And how is that affecting the way they live? How is that affecting the way they see their goals in life? And I found that that atmosphere very much related to being trapped as well, both geographically and trapped as a woman or somebody within a patriarchal system. So I was always trying to find a way to relate the exterior to the interior of the characters. Yeah, I think in one of the earlier cuts, you had a shot of a Confederate flag. I remember and you had briefly mentioned that before, too. But I thought that's a really wonderful way to visually sort of symbolize one, a place that seems to be in a different time. And second, also this intersectionality of an experience of being in a rural landscape where one of your main characters is half black and what you face when you are sort of so removed and that the dream becomes New York. Yeah, I think like that Confederate flag presented itself. We didn't go find it. We were trying to shoot at a school. We did shoot at this high school. And right beside this high school was this gigantic Confederate flag in the back of somebody's yard. And we were just stunned by that. And we did film it. And to be honest, when I was growing up, I saw a lot of Confederate flags, right? So to me, it wasn't, it didn't feel like I want to film this because that would be cool. Like, I'm like, no, this, I remember seeing Confederate flags when I was growing up. It's still, racism is so present still, not only in rural communities, but I saw it a lot when I was growing up. So I thought, I'm going to capture this. It didn't end up in the film ultimately, but it was there for a while. But again, I think the thing with firecrackers that I struggle with is like, there's so much I'm trying to say. You pack too much into a film, it can get, I think that's like a first time feature filmmaker's sort of like dilemma is like, you have so much to say and then you try to pack it all in and sometimes you can't do every story thread justice. And I feel sometimes regret about that in certain regards, but it's a lesson I will take forward as I make my second feature. Well, I think actually what's beautiful about your film is the fact that it seems specific yet universal in its themes. And I think like that's also a balance that's very difficult to get. And I think it felt very Southwestern Ontario, but then the themes felt like you could relate to that even if you grew up in a city, you know? Yeah. And that was intentional. I wanted it to feel like specific and universal at the same time. And also for people to sort of be peeling back the layers of this onion for a while after they see the film, because there's so it is so layered. I think it's really nice that you guys met in film school and then have since been working together. Can you tell me a little bit about your dynamic as a producer director and maybe how your relationship has potentially changed over time? I mean, we met obviously when film school started at Ryerson. That was 
2010. We started working together in our second year. And at that time, I wasn't even sure if I wanted to produce. I wasn't really sure what I was looking to get into. And I just started working with Jasmine and it felt very natural. And we had very similar goals in what we wanted to do with film and what kind of stories we wanted to tell, what we wanted to see on screen. I think that was probably the thing that bonded us together, especially at the beginning. Now, I mean, I think it's really helpful to have that partnership, especially coming out of school when we were like not sure what we're going to do. We had um, good success with the short film. I think that kind of motivated us to keep going. But even after that, there's no deadlines. There's nothing tying you to continue to make films. So it was really us pushing each other. And I think that's been a huge help in getting us to the feature and get to where we are now. So how does that work between the two of you working on this particular film? Do you feel like you both own it equally or is there sort of like a bit of a default to the director-writer? I always wonder because producer is a nebulous <laughs> role. Yeah, I think it can vary substantially just from different productions, but also different working relationships. I mean, Jasmine and I are very close, like as friends, but also when she's writing the first draft of the script, like we actually went on a trip to New York in 2015 for fun. <laughs> and then she had just written the first draft of the script. And I think we like started talking about it at like 11 o'clock at night. Instead of going to bed, we just spoke about it for like five hours. I think Caitlin is like your creative producer, mm -hmm. not necessarily just a line producer or production manager. She very much comes from like a creative thought process. So like she's a really good story editor. And we often in the early conceptions of ideas, when they're a grain of an idea, I can bounce those ideas off Caitlin and we can talk about them in depth. I think because you want to find partners who you share the same values with. Sort of like, what are we trying to do as filmmakers in the world? We're not just trying to like make any story. We want to like change the world in subtle ways for the better through our storytelling. And I think that we both have that shared value. And I think that's why like we continue to work together. It's the stories I want to tell, even if it is like an autobiographical thing. Caitlin can kind of challenge, okay, but what is the theme? What are you really trying to say in this? And we have these conversations, like you said, and we stayed up all night in New York making notes on what the second draft of Firecrackers will be. And it just feels natural. And I think that's the best type of partnerships you can have. Yeah, it doesn't feel like work. Um, and that's probably the most exciting part too, especially at the beginning when you're starting to form something. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's very unique. <laughs> <laughs> and incredibly important because I think filmmaking is such a weird, very intense, laborious process. And I think only other filmmakers understand that, especially when you're making narrative film because there's just so many balls rolling. And to have someone by your side who experiences all that and goes through that all of that and then you know you're done and it's over and you're like can't believe I did that to have this someone who is your witness and did that with you I think is really helpful to, to keep you standing <laughs> after how did you feel seeing your film like from you worked on it for years and I know it took some while to to get that support and those resources how did it feel to finally see it as you guys both know you watch your film so many times throughout it's the editing process through the mixing process but watching it with audiences, that's a whole different vibe. And with this film specifically, it's been interesting because it can be very uncomfortable for a lot of audience and depends on the, the demographic. With TIFF, the first screening at TIFF was not enjoyable experience for me watching it with an audience, to be honest, because quite a lot of like, I want to say slightly older people walked out. And I'm like, as a filmmaker, people could be walking out for all sorts of reasons, but you're like so sensitive to being like, oh, look at all these people walking out, grabbing their bags and leaving. This old lady, like right directly in front of me was like, oh, no. And she just like picked up her bags and like shuffled out. And I was just like, I could never relax in that experience. And the actors were a little bit nervous watching themselves. And they were sitting with you. It was just like this wasn't this fantasy in my head of what it was going to be of like, oh, great. Now I can watch it with the audience and experience it like it's the first time watching it. Not at all. Like it was so stressful. And the Q&A like felt really rushed the first time. And the second screening was better. But I've never sat in on it again, to be honest. So um, <laughs> I was like, that was it. So uh, oh, wow. it wasn't, it's funny though, how you can have 
ideas and like fantasies about what you think things are going to be. And then, of course, it never is exactly what it is. But like I've enjoyed watching it. Like I'm, I'm proud of the film. But you can't control, you know, the way an audience is going to respond. I did not expect you to say that, you know? No, me neither. I mean, because we, we, when, we, when you first sent us a rough cut or a fine cut of the film, we actually both didn't know you had sent it to us. And then, like, one day I was just like, I saw Jasmine's film. And I'm like, I did too. And then we started girl crushing over, like, isn't it fucking amazing, Aww. this film? <laughs> we both were like, it's going to do wonders. <laughs> But I think that's the thing about making a film like this. I think you're going to ruffle a few feathers. I think your characters are both not easily likable. And I think that's a good thing. There is a bit of girl power in there, which is also, and it's a certain age group. There's so many things about this film that I think like I can see and I can see your inspirations. That first opening scene, I was like, Andrea Arnold. (laughs) There's like so many things that are sort of like, those are not easy filmmakers. And I think that's like actually a good thing in some ways. But I want to talk about TIFF because that's actually interesting. As a platform, you know, you dream as a filmmaker of having your world premiere at TIFF. It's one of the big festivals. And I wanted to sort of hear a little bit about your expectations and if you really felt like it lived up to uh, what you were hoping it would do for your film. I think it really did put us in a good position with the film. We were lucky to have, right before it premiered at TIFF, IndieWire, through uh, one of our publicists, sort of picked it up. And then that set a lot of stuff in motion. During the festival, we did a lot of like press and interviews and it was covered. It was a good launching platform. I mean, my tip was spent meeting with a lot of managers and agents. They'd heard about it. So it really did specifically... I think for a Canadian film, it did break through like a Canadian bubble and more to the United States because a lot, you know, in L.A., it seems to like have been spoken about in these spheres because they somehow like found me. So I don't know if it was through the IndieWire article or something like that, but I think it did. TIFF did a lot for us. Yeah, because I think our biggest concern was you're coming into a Canadian festival as a Canadian film. Are people going to assume you just got programmed because they needed to hit a Canadian quota? So I think we were nervous about that. But once the IndieWire, um, yeah, there was an, an exclusive clip that went online. It kind of happened and building up to it, we kind of felt, okay, maybe maybe people are paying attention to us. So I think it worked out <laughs> really well. Yeah. 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 And it's a small film. So we kept our expectations in check, I think, the whole time. Right. And like, we're grateful. I mean, you also touched on a zeitgeist, right? With, I mean, you're being asked about this a lot. I'm sure the hashtag me too and so on. You've gotten a lot of traction. I think I've been sort of watching your Twitter and watching your Facebook. And I feel like the film has been traveling very well. You've received an award recently. Congratulations on that. So do you think it is the fact that you are fitting into a conversation everyone wants to have? Have you thought about what it is about the film in some sense? It's a good film. That's like undeniable. Yeah, no, but I definitely think it helps that that's what the conversation like around like Me Too and Time's Up. I don't know if the conversation wasn't there. Would people be as like responding the same way that they are now? I mean, people are just more, I think, aware of certain themes and certain things that we're touching on in the film. And I'm not sure if that was part of the same public conversation, even when we were doing it, like starting in like 2015, 2016. I think for us, we always knew that it was something that needed to be explored. I think we always felt women would connect to it kind of regardless. I mean, of course, not all women, but especially young women. But I think it does help, obviously, with the current political climate, too. Yeah, like at the press conference, when I went on to sort of that like interview line, Every interview is about how does this relate to Me Too? Is Me Too what inspired your film? And like the answer is no, not necessarily. I wrote this before that became a global phenomenon. But it depends who's asking the questions, you know, like this film takes risks and is showing women sort of unapologetically, especially young women. People do relate it back to that, but with certain like male audiences or like older male I won't say names, but like, you know, it's like it just flies over their head or they just say don't it makes them angry. I think that's a weird response or an interesting response is that it's actually made some men 
angry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> reactions. I actually like hearing that. Yeah. Do you notice a difference in, I mean, can we explore that a bit further, the demographic reaction to your film? Is there like, do you feel like it's more along gender lines or age lines or both? Gender and age, I would say definitely. Like young women come up to us after screening so much. Some of them are very emotional, crying or like there's some sort of nerve that's being struck there. And we're not surprised. But then, yeah, with we've seen like we did a test screening. There was some young men who got were writing angry comments like you portray men as either weak or what stupid or something. And I was like, the very fact that they can only see vulnerability as weak proves my point in the film. Right. So it's like and then with older getting into older women, older men, they just like purely do not understand the motivations of the characters. I've had maybe older women say to me, well, the you know, the girls make such bad decisions, such bad decisions, you know, like almost scolding me and men too. So it's like, okay, you know, I didn't write it for everybody. I don't think you can make a film that's for everybody. And if you do, how many risks are you taking? And I'm always about like, I w- we want to take risks with our films. We're going to keep doing that. So I think we knew we were going to make some people uncomfortable. Yeah. I really think, yeah, our goal was to make a film for young women. And I think we succeeded in that. Was it hard to sell at first when you were still in the development stages because you were taking such risks and you had such a strong voice in that? I think because with the telefilm micro-budget program as it was, they don't really pay too much attention to you. I think when we were pitching, we were really saying, like, you need to allow us to make a film about women for women. And we, like, definitely made that very clear, what we were trying to do. We didn't really have to appeal to too many other people. It was more important to try to get the crew and, like, cast involved. Most of our key creatives ended up being women. And I don't think that was really for us, like, choosing. We, like, we need to work with women. It's just they read the script and they connect with it. And I think that made it exciting for them. And people, they just wanted to work on it with us. Yeah. So that worked really well. I think towards the end when we were trying to find some extra financing and different things, that's where it got a little bit trickier. No, I mean, we heard comments like, I always like, I've heard a few times from a few sort of older men who watched the film is, I have daughters. I can't show this to them. It just makes me laugh. But like, these are sorts of the things that I was hearing amongst a few different people like at the top or like it depends different people in different positions of power were saying so strange things like this about the film and I think that there's people who could see the merit in it but there's people who again felt there was a it felt threatening to them we didn't like Caitlin said we didn't have to because telefilm talent to watch it's an easier fund to get but later I do question what if we're pitching and trying to get more funding up front and it is more of this process how difficult is it going to be for us with these ideas that we have in these points of view to get funding if this if these are the people who are afraid of this film and these characters so we'll see I wanted to come back to what something you had said earlier which was this idea of being constantly asked this question about me too in a way this comes up and it's coming up in our conversation with you as well do you feel like you're being pigeonholed as a woman or female filmmaker And does that bother you or not? Or do you feel like this is actually what I wanted to do? I wanted to have these conversations. If the questions are really specific and well thought through, I'm very happy to have those conversations. But sometimes when you like I was kind of talking about press conferences, that's a setting where it's just like these buzzwords that people are like, you're a women filmmaker. Talk about me, too. And it's like that approach to me, it feels lazy and doesn't feel like you're really sort of taking into consideration the filmmaker's background. You're just sort of stopping at the fact that they're female. So in those situations, I find it, you know, I'm pigeonholed. But when you get into more like long form conversations with people who are more thoughtful about their questions, then it feels I'm very happy to open and sort of dissect what that means to be a 
female filmmaker because there's so many nuances to it and there's so many different ways in which being a female filmmaker, of course, going back to intersectionality, can be difficult and can be challenging and, you know. Yeah, and I think for women, sometimes it's this weird moment where you feel like you are answering always to sort of things related to gender, but they obviously come up. And with white men, we don't ask them that. But I feel like if you look at films, they're so informed by a white male perspective. So as a woman, like, of course, it's going to inform your perspective. And talking about that feels like a zeitgeist, but shouldn't that be just part of actually... Yeah. Contextualizing films. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I feel that too. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to sort of think about a little bit of mentorship as well, because you are two very young women making films together. And I wondered if you had any role models of mentorship, especially from other female filmmakers, or was this something you're just exploring together and sorting out? I think that's the thing about Canada. I wish there was more models for mentorship for female filmmakers, especially. And I feel like maybe that's just at the beginning. It's sort of it's in its infancy. I've talked to Caitlin and other filmmakers about this. And like, like Kelly Reichardt came to speak at Ryerson last year to like some alumni and some film students. And I got to sit in. I was invited to that. And it was a very small group. And she is a mentor in the United States to filmmakers because she also teaches at universities. And I'm like, we don't really have that. And I so much crave that. I would have loved having that. And even now, I would still love to have that. I think that's part of like what we're trying to do as filmmakers going forward in the future can we help other women make films but right now I don't think that there's a good infrastructure for that Um, I teach at a film school it's the same thing I walked into a classroom where they were teaching I think third or fourth year film production and it was amazing to look at the lineup of professors and be like whoa it's four guys teaching this class and four guys with the same background and you do think about that coming up through film schools like you both have like who are the role models more immediately in the classroom yeah and also like we had some very good female film professors i'm thinking of one in particular in our first year but you know going forward it's like also who do you study as filmmakers like who's the canon of filmmakers who you're studying who who are the names that keep coming up when you're referencing great filmmaking i think like that whole system probably again it maybe is changing i'm sure in your class, I should that you're making sort of like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and without having to position them always as and now we're talking about a female filmmaker. It's like when we do the French New Wave, we watch Agnes Verda. You know, like you don't necessarily default just to the men. It's so interesting you bring that up because this is a conversation I can have forever, so you have to cut me off. But I do think about that as well. I remember going to Black Dog when I was around, and they were like the hundred best filmmakers. There was one woman, ninety nine men, and one woman in the history of cinema you think are the best filmmakers. And I think we are just having that conversation now. And now people are listening. But for me, when I was saying that five or six years ago, I feel like people still thought you were just a feminazi. You know, you're like, you don't see anything wrong with this. I think that's amazing. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's wonderful for you also to come into this industry at this moment. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I think we remind ourselves of that. I got to kind of get to know a little bit Patricia Rosamond on this festival tour because our films both came out at the same time. And in Halifax, I got to spend a bit of time with her and she was telling me about, I think, you know, when she was my age and how she was like one of the only queer woman filmmaker. And she was telling me sort of about that experience and it made me really put everything in perspective. I felt lucky in that moment to be like, wow, I'm lucky I get to be a female filmmaker at this time. And it, and it sort of, yeah, it humbled me. And I think that, again, it goes back to mentorship. It's like, wow, if I could have those conversations more, I think it would help to put everything in perspective. Not to say that things are like great and shouldn't change, but um, I felt really lucky to have that experience. So what's next, guys? What's next for Prowler Film? I'm really curious to, to know what projects you have up your sleeves, but also how your experience with Firecrackers, especially your vision as a director, will inform them. I feel like I have so many ideas, but also like need to focus. It's always like in that development period, you're like, oh, 
film about this, this and this. I mean, I will always say that they have to do, they're probably always going to be female focused or like have a female protagonist and story to tell. I think that's like what Caitlin and I feel very passionate about going forward and doing. I kind of hinted at the fact that I think things may be more autobiographical. I'm Iranian and I've never really delved deep into that part of myself in film. I don't know. I think we're, because we worked on Firecrackers and it's such a small team. I feel like we've been living in like firecrackers world for like three years and now we're like emerging and we're like, oh, we like need to figure out what we're doing next. So we're in that process right now of really setting our goals and figuring out what's our priority. And like I'm in the process of thinking about representation and like having an agent, and maybe a manager or something like that. Being a working director, you know, it's hard, as you guys know, like in Canada to be a working director. What does that mean? Because you can't make feature films and expect to make a living. So um, I'm interested sort of in exploring both paths of like directing for hire, but also like doing our stuff, which is really important and specific to what we're trying to say. So it's like learning how to balance that going forward. And I find it's, it's kind of a difficult period again to be in and just learning that being a filmmaker is a difficult path. It's just always going to be. I don't think it'll ever be easy. This is where the mentorship comes in too. When you talk to other filmmakers who've been making films for 20 or 30 years, they'll tell you every film is a challenge. Because I think when you talk to people who don't work in film, they think, you made firecrackers. It was a success. This means the road will be paved for you and you can just walk down without thinking about what direction you're going. But that's not the truth. No, no. I, I think the second feature, too, is just almost harder in a way because it's, you have something to be compared to. It's like a sophomore album of like a musician. It's like and I think that, yeah, like Caitlin said, you have to keep your blinders on and not let that put pressure on you while you're creating and that will be the challenge going forward yeah <laughs> oh i have such success i don't know how i'm going to <laughs> i'm kidding <laughs> well we're so glad that you both came in thank you so much for us it's such a circle we you know we remember you were one of our favorite guests from the first year and then to come and join us for our last episode is very special well thank you i'm so happy to have come and spoken with you guys and i love this podcast so that's it for season three. Thank you for listening to our final episode. Aisha, what are some of your thoughts on the overall themes we've been discussing uh, this season? Uh, I mean, it's been really wonderful to dive into some of more the positive aspects of what is happening in this industry. But I think one of the things I think about after each episode that we record is that I hope that this is not just a window opening and closing and that this is sort of a road forward to sustainable change and that we won't be, I mean, I'm sure we'll have these conversations for a long time because nothing is 100% fixed, but that there is some really long lasting changes that are being made. Yeah, I have this gut feeling where I'm like, I have to finish a film now because I might never have an opportunity to make a feature film in my life again. Like this is, you know, this is a time for women and I really have this feeling and it shouldn't be that way. It should be more like this is happening. This is a movement and we're only going to be here to stay and actually be able to support each other in our practices. And I thought it was interesting how we came to mentorship in the discussion we had with Jasmine and Caitlin and how they've really felt a void in that and how that would be something they'd like to see change. And I thought, yeah, that is something where I feel is incredibly necessary to sustain this movement. I mean, for me, the most important part, hopefully coming out of this, is this idea of equality and what it means. And hopefully that we can sustain this, what I hope is a shared human value instead of just a moment in time where everyone thinks, oh, that's a good idea. Well, time will tell. In the meantime, thank you for listening to The Gaze. I'm Maya Bedward. I'm Aisha Jamal. And we'll see you next time.